We greet those of you here in the room. We greet those of you joining us online. Since Waterstone began in 1984, we've made it a deliberate practice to communicate um, about our finances in a very direct and even-handed way. And that is basically to every several months tell you what's going on. So with our financial journey in 2022, we ended the first quarter in March right at the mark of our giving budget. But I want to let you know, those of you who are members and those of you who call Waterstone home, that in April, we finished the month, the first month of the second quarter, $50,000 behind budget. So we are doing our due diligence, trying to find out some of what's happened there. Uh, Brad Haycoop is, is just doing a deep dive into some of that. But we also wanted you to be aware of it. And if you have any capacity to give a gift of any size to help us close that gap, and we don't want that gap to keep growing, um, it would be greatly valued, especially as we sit on the edge of a great summer of neighboring and some amazing events like Vacation Bible School. So please prayerfully consider um, how you can engage in that need. Our scripture reading this morning is found in John chapter 3. It's an encounter that Jesus, Son of God, has with a religious leader named Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born from above talk? Jesus said, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within us is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows, this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone, born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, blow like the wind in Wyoming or Colorado, inside and outside the fences. Blow where you want to. Recreate, renew, restore. And may it begin 
with us in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Andrew Wilson, in his book, The God of All Things, he uh, shares how impressed he is with the Scripture's use of metaphor to describe God. He writes, Sometimes the wisdom of biblical literature and imagery blows me away. I'm sure no pun intended there. Let's say you're trying to come up with a metaphor for the way that God works in the world. And it has to be one that can be grasped by a child. You need a simple, everyday image that communicates sovereignty without fatalism. An immense power that can do whatever it wants in absolute freedom, but without destroying the meaningful response of other beings. The picture needs to show how God brings life to his creatures in creating them, and how he continues to animate their daily lives in an ongoing basis. And if your metaphor could also find a way of explaining that God is spirit, and therefore both invisible and immaterial, without being any less real. That would be a bonus. This is the genius of Scripture. Not just that there is such an image and that every child from about the age of three can understand it, but also that it is introduced in the second verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, wind, breath of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There you have it. Picture the activity of God in creation like a mighty wind preparing to blow across the face of the deep or like the breath of God preparing to animate and give life to his creatures. Now, I suspect that in most evangelical churches or apostolic Christian churches, that uh, the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, that he exists and who he is is not much in question. And we'll talk a little bit more of that in a few moments. But what I do think churches struggle with is not so much what the, who the Holy Spirit is, but what the Holy Spirit does. So you walk into some churches today, and boy, you don't know what to expect. There's like this demonstration of power, and people will be miraculously healed, and they'll touch their foreheads, and they'll fall to the ground, slain in the Spirit, and people will speak in tongues. And uh, it's an amazing demonstration of power. And that's why people go to churches like this, we call them Pentecostal or charismatic churches. And I think, you know, sometimes we sit here and think, well, that's just a you know, relatively recent phenomenon, maybe started with the Jesus hippies in the 1970s. No, this kind of demonstration of power has been in the church, well, from its birthday in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see that in a few moments. But it's been throughout church history. I'm a huge student of reading uh, history of revivals. And one of my favorites was the Great Awakening in, in America, in the colonies. It's estimated that one out of every 12 people living in the colonies uh, around the turn of the 1600s into the 1700s came under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards 
and George Whitfield. Now, Jonathan Edwards was like the second or third president of Princeton University. I would argue that to this day, he is still the greatest American theological mind. Jonathan Edwards would write out his sermons, and I have his collection of sermons. They were an hour and 45 minutes to two hours long. Whew. You picked the right time to be born. <laughs> and he would read them, and there are these theological treatises. But I'm telling you what happens. And by the way, if you want to read more about these, you can read his, his uh, memoirs on the Great Awakening, this revival that happened. It's called... Um, a, a, a faithful narrative to the surprising work of God. And as Edwards would read this theology, the Holy Spirit would break in, and Edwards records people being slain in the Spirit on the floor with unstoppable laughter. They couldn't stop laughing. And there'd be people barking, he would say. Now, he did have a little issue with the barking, but all this like crazy, weird stuff that would happen. And that's why some people go to church. What does the Holy Spirit do? Come Holy Spirit, He shows power. Now, <laughs> I'm guessing most of you are here in this kind of church because you may not be fully comfortable with that demonstration of power. And uh, uh, what we say, when we say come Holy Spirit in a more uh, evangelical Protestant church like Waterstone, is that we see the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated in preaching and in proclaiming Jesus. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to put the floodlight on Jesus, and when Jesus is lifted up and illuminated, man, hearts are drawn to Him, and He changes people inside out. Amen? That's the power of the Spirit. When, he's pre uh, uh, when Jesus is preached and lifted up, People get saved and lives change. And they change just not in places like this, but then they go out into the world and they change their world. That's the demonstration of power. So we don't necessarily go to church to see people speak in tongues and roll on the floor. We go to church to see Jesus lifted up and people get saved and come into a relationship with Jesus. We're a little leery. We don't know what to do with this other stuff, quite frankly. Uh, we, uh, about once a year, have an elder meeting where we go through our uh, speaking in tongues and words of insight drill. And what we do is we say, okay, if anyone ever speaks in tongues in a service in Waterstone, here's what we're going to do. We're ready. Come on. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> that's enough on that subject. Now, the third kind is in the Catholic tradition. When you read Catholic theology, you see a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit in the placement of priests, the succession of bishops, and, and the Pope. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides the leadership of the church and places priests and parishes. And that's a really important thing for the Catholic life because you know it's the blessing of the priest that in the moment with the Mass, creates the elements into the actual literal body and blood of Jesus. So the priest is very important and central in the role of the Catholic Church. And it's the Holy Spirit that oversees the placement of the church. So you see this huge spectrum of what the Holy Spirit does in churches. And I'm here to say that since the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, He has been controversial ever since. 
There are those who, you know, want miracles every week. And if a miracle doesn't happen, if there's not like a wild display of God's power, we're not worshiping in the right way. It's, it's almost a focus of miracles to the exclusion of Jesus. And then there are also churches like us that want to put God in a box. And we really want to say, okay, Holy Spirit, if you want to, you can come between the church life and the next song, right in there. How do we bring all this together? Again, we all agree on who the Holy Spirit is. I think the fun is to talk about what the Holy Spirit does. And today, what I'd like to do is try to talk about him linked to Scripture. So my goal is that if you have an argument with anything I say today, you're actually arguing with a passage of Scripture, which I think will actually bring charismatics and you know, evangelicals and Catholics together as we talk today about what the Holy Spirit does. Sound like a good plan? Let's talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about, I mean, I'm sorry, the theology of the Holy Spirit, the, uh, and then the, the story of the Holy Spirit, and then the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does. Now, two quick things before we dive in. One, if you're a seeker this morning, watching online, maybe here in the room you got invited here, you're not sure about this Christian thing, I think you're going to walk out of the service understanding churches and Christians a little better. I think some of what's shared today, you'll say, oh, yeah, I could see that in, in this person I came with. Or uh, I, I think there'll be some, maybe hopefully, light bulbs that go off that say, okay, I can understand more about what this church thing's doing. Or, I, and I hope you even might be drawn to even know more about it and ask questions. And after the service today, we're going to have elders down here and, and uh, staff and Stephen ministers will be down here in the front. And we'd love to dialogue more with you if you have questions about this idea of the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want to say is that we're doing this series uh, called The Essentials. And we've talked about God the Father and God the Son last week, Jesus, and today's the Holy Spirit. And the goal of this is not just so that you become more informed in your theology, though I hope that happens, and these doctrinal kind of messages, they do form us. But even more what I, I hope happens, we hope, is that this sits more deeply in, into our lives and actually changes our behavior. And one of the ways that I hope our behavior changes is that when we focus on the essentials, it draws us together in unity. Our goal is that as a result of these messages, we are more fiercely committed on the things we agree so that those things we don't agree won't rip us apart. Does that sound good to you as well? By the way, like our friend David Bailey said a few weeks ago, if you say amen, the sermon goes faster. So please, moms, moms, lead the way here for us uh, today. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Let's talk about the theology of the Holy Spirit. In the First Testament, beginning in Genesis, the emphasis is on, on the one God. Every prayer, even today, that uh, an, a Jew prays begins with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. There's one divine being who has the greatness of God, that is, who's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, divinity, all the goods that go with being God, this God has. 
And it's not only the great goods, it's the good goods. That is, our God, being God, is perfect in holiness, in love, in mercy, in grace. All of those character qualities that actually human beings can share, but imperfect in us, are perfect and infinite in Him. So there's one God who is great and good. But you begin to see from the very opening of Genesis that this one God is unique in that he exists in three persons and personalities. So, for instance, we we read in Genesis 1, verse 2, the spirit, the ruach is the Hebrew word, which means breath, wind, uh, and and it's a voice. It's it's this idea of the spirit brooding over the face of the deep to, to make things new and to form new and then a little later in genesis 1 we read let us on the day six make men and women in our image so you're asking who's the us and who's the our right who is this god great and good but who is speaking in the first person plural our and us well you begin to see as you read through the first testament that this God is actually a God that exists in three persons. We come to know them as the Scripture progressively reveals them as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Christian God is a God, one, in being and essence and program, but uh, a they in terms of persons and personalities. One in three three in one the father is god and has all the godness the son is god and has all the godness the spirit is god and has all the godness but they are one one essence as god so it the one god is equally they and the they is equally one and i know everyone now we are we are like falling down into the pit of infinite infiniteness now um you know Theologians for years have tried to grapple with how you talk about the Trinity, and they often turn to material things like a three-leaf clover. Or maybe I've heard the Trinity described as the phases of water, right, like ice and liquid and steam, but still all water. My favorite one is, uh, kids, you might know this, that in Germany, uh, sometime in the 1500s, in Sunday school, they wanted to teach kids about the Trinity, and they invented the Barbarian pretzel to teach the Trinity. Yeah, Barbarian pretzel, you've been to Auntie Anne's lately? That pretzel with the three loops, you know, for the three persons. That's why that pretzel was invented. So God is in the malls all the time now. <laughs> Those three loops are God, but it's all pretzel. I once heard a black preacher, uh, Tony Evans, a great preacher in Dallas, He was unpacking the Trinity, and he told the story of barbarian pretzels, and then he said, look, ultimately it comes to this. We're finite people trying to describe the infinite person. You can use pretzels if you want, but eventually you just got to eat the pretzel and enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) So there's the theology, but the third person, what I want you to hear is that in Scripture, as it's revealed to us, and we'll see the story in just a moment, what we begin to hear about the Holy Spirit is, first, divine attributes are attributed to Him. 
So for instance, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you see a Trinitarian blessing like this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So you see this Trinity like boldly named. You, uh, you understand from places in the Psalms where it says, uh, where can I go in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. And what's being attributed to the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, an attribute of God. Or one of the scary ones in Acts chapter 5, maybe you'll read this this week, but um, in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple in the thriving early church, where everyone's sacrificially giving and selling property and bringing it to the church. Well, they tell the apostles that they sold so many lands and brought this much money when in actuality they didn't and they kept some back for themselves. They lied. And God, ooh, I, I, I'm glad this only happened once that I know of. But he struck them down. Not for like not giving, but for lying. And what's interesting, the way Peter confronts Ananias, the husband, he says, Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a couple sentences later, he says, you've not lied to human beings, you've lied to God. So what's Peter doing there? He is equating the Spirit with God. It's a direct reference to the divinity of the third person of the Trinity. So there you have the Holy Spirit. The theology of the Spirit is that He is God, has the greatness and the goodness of God, but He's the third person and personality within the Trinity, um, the Holy Spirit. Now, let's see the story revealed. We're going to put your seatbelts on. We're just going to fly through the entire Scriptures here in about five minutes. So it starts in Genesis, and what we see the Spirit doing in Genesis is He's hovering over the face of the deep, and then we see Him in, intimately involved in creation in two ways. First, what He does is He's responsible for the physical life of the planet. The plants, the animals, and human beings are all carried by the Ruach, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit that animates physical life and holds life together. You're alive because of the Holy Spirit's work in this moment, right now. And your dog too. But he also, the Holy Spirit, we see it throughout the rest of the Genesis, he's not only involved in the physical life, but he's involved in the spiritual life. It's the Holy Spirit that wants to take every person that is being kept alive and connect them to God. In Genesis 2, it talks about the Ruach of God coming in to the human beings. And then the rest of Genesis is this story about how God wants to be connected to people. And it's the Spirit of God that takes the blindness from the heart after the fall and the deadness and opens hearts to God so that they can have relationships. So the rest of really the First Testament, we see God, the Spirit, doing this. So for instance, in Exodus... When God wants to have his people connected to him and they worship in the tabernacle, there's this interesting story about a guy named Bezalel who was like this, this tradesman, this craftsman. He works with wood, stone, metal. And it says the Holy Spirit of God came upon Bezalel and enabled him, empowered him to build everything in the tabernacle out of gold and silver and wood and stone. The Holy Spirit so desperately wants people connected to God that he comes over on this guy Bezalel and they build the tabernacle. 
We see it going on of all places in the book of Judges. Like that's one of the most grisly spots in Scripture. A lot of bad stuff in Genesis. But it's really interesting. That's where in most every other book in the New Te- Old Testament, the Spirit's at work because He keeps coming on these dudes like Gideon who was a coward or like Samson who was a rogue. All these guys. You see, Israel would fall into slavery and bondage to enemies and God would want his people to stay connected to him. So he'd send, the spirit would come down. The spirit would come down and fill these guys and they'd be great warriors and they'd win the day for Israel and connect them again back to the Father. So we see Joshua doing this at the beginning. We see David doing it during the monarchy. This leadership idea. But notice, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit in the First Testament comes on particular people in a particular place for a particular purpose. Got that? Particular people, particular place for a particular purpose. But in the prophets, God starts to make some different promises. He starts to talk about uh, a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and actually not live outside and only in particular people, but he's going to move into hearts. So we see in Jeremiah 31, we see this promise being made. This is the the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. A new covenant declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So, you know, in the First Testament, the law was supposed to direct people into behaviors so they could have fellowship with God. But what we find and what Paul says in Galatians is, no, the law is a school teacher to teach us we can't do it. No matter how hard we try, we can't be good enough to reach God through our own efforts. We need outside help. And the promise of the First Testament is that outside help, the Messiah is going to come. His name is Jesus. And one day, because of Jesus, that law that we can't conform to is actually going to move from the outside to the inside. And the Spirit will help us become more and more conformed to this person we follow, Jesus. You ever been backpacking in Colorado? Those of you that have, you kind of know how this works, right? When you start out, you're going to spend a couple nights out in, the, out in the woods. All that food on your back, you're in your backpack, it's heavy. It's a burden. And you start out, and man, it's work. But what happens after days out in the, in the wilderness? Well, you're eating some of that food. So as you eat that food, what happens? Your backpack becomes lighter, and you become more energetic from the inside because that food's no longer on your back, it's in your tummy. And you're fueled by that food. That's the way it's going to work with the Holy Spirit. The law is no longer going to be a burden on the back, but the Holy Spirit's going to take the law into our insides and uh, fuel us to keep walking through this uh, Christian life. So the promise is in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then in Joel, we're told that it's not only going to happen to particular people, but it's going to happen to every person who follows Jesus. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. So it's old and young. And it's both genders. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's it's. No, no uh, ethnic divisions. It's on every person who follows Jesus will now get the Holy Spirit. No longer particular people for a particular place in a particular time, but every person who follows Jesus will have the Holy Spirit living inside them. And then it begins to happen. The birth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit gets very active. John the Baptist 
starts shaking in Elizabeth's womb. He's a perinatal Pentecostal. And he is just pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus from the womb. And then Elizabeth and, and uh, Zechariah, his parents, they prophesy and they're pointing to Jesus. And Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit and she's pointing to Jesus. So all this begins to happen. And then we go to Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, the Father speaks blessing over a son and says, I am so pleased with you. And then he says to the world, look at him. And then Jesus is in the water because he has, wants to so identify with human beings that this was a sinner's baptism. So he identifies himself even as a sinner to be baptized and fulfill all righteousness, to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died. That's why he's in the water. And then what's the Holy Spirit doing? It's like a dove, right? And the text says, it's one of my favorite English words, that the dove is alighting. A-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, alighting on Jesus. That's the whole mission of the Holy Spirit, is to put the light on Jesus. He's normally very shy, and he stays in the background. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants everything pointed to Jesus. So you see the Spirit working, and then John in Luke 3.16 makes this astounding statement. John answered them. They're asking him why he's baptizing. I baptize you with water, but the one who's more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we see the Holy Spirit taking a prominent role in the teaching of Jesus. So one moment in John chapter 7, it's the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And what they did on one particular day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's like the Jewish Thanksgiving, the priest would get a, uh, a, um, like a bucket. Help me here. What's the thing you pour water with? A what? Pitcher. Thank you. A pitcher. And he would go down to the pool of Siloam, the living water. He'd get the pitcher full of water. And in procession, all the crowds following him, he'd go back to the west side of the altar. He'd pour the pitcher down into a tube that was constructed. And... Uh, the water would roll from the west side of the altar out through the west wall of the Temple Mount. Why? They're reenacting visually a moment from Ezekiel when in the day to come, when the temple's re-rebuilt, a river will flow out of the temple and it will make the whole earth green and flourish. Well, they enacted that every year. It was a way for them to not only say thank you to God for the water, but it was also a hopeful ceremony that one day, one day, God's river will renew the earth. So imagine what people thought when Jesus stands up in the middle of this very solemn ceremony and says, <laughs> let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Imagine what you would have thought if you were in that crowd and someone stood up and said that. But what Jesus is saying there is not only is he the fountain of life, but anyone who follows him is going to have that life in them, and they're going to be the river. You and I are going to be the river to our world that brings the living water of Jesus. And then in John chapter 14, just before he goes to the cross, he preaches this sermon to the apostles. 
John 14 through 16, it can really be captured in one word. It's in these verses, I will ask the Father and he will give you an advocate. Let me say that just before this, Jesus has said, I know you're sad, you're beginning to understand that I'm gonna go away, but it's a good thing that I'm going away. A good thing, and they're like, what? And he says, an advocate will help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The word cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Advocate is the word. In the Greek, it's parakletos. And its, it's origins, we think, come from the Greek empire. It's a Greek word. And it's, it was actually used in the military to define a fighting technique. So you'd have your sword, and you'd be aware of everything in front of you, and you're 180, that would be your responsibility. But when you fought in Parakletos, you would have another soldier behind you, back to back, who would cover your back. So you advance forward and worry what's there, but you're never left alone by your Parakletos. That's the beautiful picture of the word. It's this idea of one who is so close, always protecting us, always informing us, always helping us move forward. That's what the Holy Spirit is and does with us. So there's Jesus teaching, and then it happens. Acts 1.8, after the resurrection, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. So because the Spirit's always pointing to Jesus, one of his primary function is to make us witnesses, and then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. When the church's birth is a tropical storm, that's the language that's used. The room is full of the Holy Spirit. And it says he comes down in tongues of fire that rest individually over everyone in that room. And they begin to speak in tongues, not gibberish, but this idea, each of them speaking a language. Because it was the Feast of Pentecost, there were thousands of people visiting Jerusalem. And they were all in their own languages hearing about Jesus because people who to that point only knew one or two languages, now they could speak in a different language from around the world. Amazing, amazing beginning. People <laughs> wondering what's going on visiting Jerusalem. Is this what it's like every day? Uh, I don't know. And then Peter gets up and says, no, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And then he says, what you're seeing in this moment is the promise that the Father made to Jesus that one day He would pour out His Spirit through Jesus into God's people. And folks, we haven't stopped since. Amen. So, let's get to our third question, right? That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's His story. What does He do? We're going to fly through this as well. Five things. You say, oh no, five. No, it'll be quick, I promise. Five things. First thing he does is make us family. Romans chapter 8, he makes us family. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Children. Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. We sung this this morning. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I want to point out the word adoption. In the Greek and Roman Empire, adoption was the privilege of the wealthy who were childless, and they would adopt a fine young Roman citizen of fine character so that they could pass on through him their name and their wealth. 
God adopts this word, adoption, to say, I don't care what your character is. In fact, I'm choosing people of questionable character like me and like you. And I'm going to put my spirit on them through Jesus and they are going to be my sons and daughters. Adoption. <laughs> I've watched people over 30 years here at Waterstone adopt kids. And it's always an amazing, amazing experience. I remember several years ago, we had a family adopt uh, a Chinese toddler. And um, for about four months, they had a picture of this little girl. And they prayed over her every day. And they just, you know, their hearts grew to her. But I'll never forget when they got back talking to the mom, she said, I know I prayed over the picture every day. But as soon as I held this little girl in my arms, she had my complete heart. You know, you have the complete heart of the Father. He's adopted you. And every day what the Holy Spirit does is pour His love into your heart so that you can call God, not this unknown, unnamed being, but you know what the Spirit enables us to call Him? Abba. Closest English translation, Dad. It's a mixture of respect and intimacy. If you've had a good dad, I mean, what's that worth to you? What's it like to have a good father? We have that. He's adopted us. And so we can cry out to him. And you know what he does from there is he wants to have this ongoing, you know, life is about conversation. Our lives unfold con one conversation at a time. That's true with the Father. And what the Holy Spirit does is enables us to have conversation. So we read a verse later in Romans 8. Um, where this is the Holy Spirit. He helps us talk to, to our dad. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Some of you are right here in this moment. You don't know how to talk to the Father about the pain that you've endured. You've lost what's most dear to you. You've gone through a health struggle that has leveled you. You've gone through work stress that's debilitating. All of this, wherever you are, some of you are right here. And you know, sometimes I hear this. I'll walk out into the hub after and some of you will come up and you'll apologize to me because you've been crying during the service. You'll say, I'm so sorry for crying. You know what I want to say and what I often do say to you? Don't apologize for crying in worship because that's the Holy Spirit at work in the depths of your being, interceding for the groans and the words that you can't form. That's the beginning of the healing from the Holy Spirit. Tears are welcome here. Come, Holy Spirit, come. The other way that He helps us talk to the Father is in 1 John 2. We read about this anointing that every follower of Jesus gets where we're able to understand the anointing you receive from him remains in you you do not need anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things and that anointing is real not counterfeit just as it is taught you remain in him when a person becomes a Christian the Bible stops being a book and it becomes a voice right when you receive the Holy Spirit in you it's well have you ever read a book and you meet the author or know the author, changes everything about how you read the book. 
It's not just words on a page. It's a conversation. And what the Holy Spirit does is open. He takes the deadness you know, out of your heart, the blindness out of your mind, and he says, I'm talking to you. And when you read the scriptures, that's what's happening is the Father's talking. So the first thing he does is he makes us family. The second thing he does is he gives us the family traits. In Galatians chapter 5, we read these family traits, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's, um, it's extreme home makeover in us, right? The Holy Spirit at work forming us into the image of Jesus. Last year, a year ago, I was going through radiation treatments for prostate cancer, and for 30 uh, Five straight days, I had to drive over to Sky Ridge with a full bladder and sit in the waiting room. <laughs> I'm so glad to be, uh, I, uh, yeah, better. <laughs> but I'll never forget, in the waiting room, every day, they have HGTV on there. That's the, if you don't know what HGTV is, it's like the home remodeling channel for those of us who could care less about that sort of thing. So I, I go up after a couple of weeks, I felt I earned the right to say, hey, can we watch like ESPN or something else? And the nurse like scolded me, says, no, we will never change that channel. I said, HGTV, I don't, I don't really care about home remodeling. She says, what we want you to sit there and think about is that what's happening through this process is you are in rough shape, but you're going to get in better shape. Okay. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is your HGTV. And He is making you new. Now, you think about the, the joy of the Holy Spirit. He gives you joy. Joy is the conviction that this life is not all there is. Joy is the conviction that nothing here is the last word on your life. What makes a Christian Christian is the inability to quit hoping. That's joy. And Christians walk this planet in the darkest of places, in the darkest of days, with joy. And you know why we do it? Because that's what got Jesus through. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy set before him. What was that joy? You and I and eternity together who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. We too have that joy because of the HGTV spirit working in us. Thirdly, we get unity. I'm going to be brief on this one. Just the, what the Holy Spirit does is he puts Jesus at the center, calls us family, and says as long as Jesus is at the center of this family, everything else you can fight about, but it won't break you politics, personalities, ethnic backgrounds, whatever. Those are all secondary issues. Are you hearing me? Can I get an amen? Secondary issues. Because Jesus is our main issue. And so those things will not divide us. You ever experienced that? I was in Mali, West Africa, years ago, with a, one of our missionaries, Doug Wilson. We were out in the bush, in the middle of nowhere, and um, the village had gathered around, and the way you ate in the village in, in Mali is a pot of whatever was in there. I, to this day, don't know what was in there. And you, you know, no silverware. You took turns. You reached your hand into the steaming hot food, and you ate, and you chewed, and you swallowed. 
Before it was my turn, this dear Malian gentleman grabs my right hand. You always did it with your right hand because you did other things with your left hand. He starts rubbing my hands. I look at Doug like I'm not sure what's happening in this moment, a black man rubbing a white man's hand. He rubs it 30 seconds maybe. And then afterwards I asked Doug, I said, what was that about? He didn't do that to anyone else. He says, oh, he knows you're a white man. You eat with silverware. He was trying to warm your hand up so you didn't get scorched by the food. That was the most beautiful moment of my life. That's the unity of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4. Fourthly, we get gifts to serve. And we see a list in Romans 12, but there's like four or five lists in Scripture that talk about positions, like pastors and teachers. They talk about personality traits. They talk about activities like serving and mercy and all this stuff. It's like an endless amount of ways that the Holy Spirit will uh, inspire in you where you want to serve. What it's really talking about is a radical obedience that causes you to serve in places you're gifted or maybe places you're not even gifted but you want to learn. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit's always working in you to get you to be part of the kingdom of God and serving the king in the kingdom of God. So it's this this spirit-driven hunger in us to serve. And he gifts us for that kind of service. What I want to say to you briefly, but kind of boldly this morning, especially those of you online, (laughs) how's that for a segue? We as Waterstone cannot be what we need to be with all the gifts of the Spirit at work if right now you are preferring pixels over people. In other words, we need you here. Now, there is legitimate concern, and some of you with health issues, of course, do not violate your conscience. Do not come if it's a health concern. But if it's a concern of comfort, as one dad told me, we really just right now prefer Pancake Church. We cannot be what we need to be if your only experience of church is screens. Please come back. We need the smile in your eyes. We need your handshake. We need the gifts that you want to bring to this body. Lastly, the Spirit helps the family grow. And we see throughout the book of Acts verses like this where the God is adding to the church daily. What I quickly want to say about that is the Spirit's always at work and the people, that our neighbors with whom we live, work, and play, He's preparing them in them for conversations that we're going to have preparing moments he's preparing thoughts in the unbeliever and he's preparing in you the raw material to have those conversations the show you watched last night that you're binging or or the the um, thing that happened at work this last week or whatever it is there's raw material in their lives there's raw material in your life that God is at work and he wants to bring those together in conversation and see where that conversation goes and if it's an opportunity to speak the name of Jesus into another person's life can I say something again very powerful and direct the reason that your spiritual life and I would argue the reason at Waterstone's spiritual life feels kind of anemic and dull is because we've become lazy 
and sometimes scared to even mention Jesus to another person. Do you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? I don't care if you're charismatic, Catholic, or evangelical. Do you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? He exists to put the floodlight on Jesus. You want to experience His power? Talk to someone about Jesus. And you will be amazed at how the Spirit has already been at work. We call it neighboring here at Waterstone. Pray for your neighbor once a week by name. Have that list. Do it with your family, friends. Second, engage in conversation as often as possible without stalking them. And third, invite them to your table, to your home, to an event here at Waterstone. Our next Alpha course starts August 30th. We're going to have a summer of neighboring with all kinds of events, night at the brewery, Pirate's Cove, all this stuff. Environments for you to bring your neighbor. That's all. We're on the edge of it now. So, can I pray? And then we're going to sing. Let's pray together. Lord, um, it says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? It's a passive verb. Do we just sit around and wait for Him to come? No. We hoist the sail. We say, come Holy Spirit, blow like Wyoming into my heart. But Lord, I'm going to create the sails. I'm going to read Scripture. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. I'm going to do all these things that each is a sail. And I want to say to you now, Holy Spirit, come, blow into my sails. Blow into my life with renewed power and passion and preaching. Blow. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Let's stand and sing that prayer to him now.